We are in Mark chapter 10, if you'll turn there. Uh, we do preach just systematically through Scripture here at Mark and City Church. Otherwise, I might not choose this text to preach from. Yeah, but we just work our way um, line by line through the Gospel of Mark is where we are now. So we are a Bible-teaching church. I always want you to hear from the Scriptures. And days like today remind us why. I want you to hear uh, what, what the Scriptures have to say on this subject. Um, if I ever disagree with the book, you go with the book. Uh, but sermons like today are important. The reason why we uh, just walk through the Scripture uh, line by line. By the way, um, guys, help me welcome uh, Shane Bagwell to the band. <laughs> hidden talent sitting, sitting at City Church for all these years and then one day casually mentions he played acoustic guitar. So now he's up here playing. So there's other hidden talents out there we know as well. Um, all right, so let's do this. Um, let's, let's have just a brief word of prayer to focus our hearts on uh, this subject that God would give us grace as we navigate through some tough passages here. Uh, God, give us grace and understanding. May our eyes be open. Uh, may our ears um, understand uh, what the Scriptures teach us today on this subject. Uh, give us clarity and direction, and may we understand your grace as we um, seek to talk about such a relevant and tough topic. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Um, so let me just lay this out there for you uh, to give you a little bit of relief, um, or I don't know if it gives you relief or if it scares you, uh, but um, I am divorced, okay? I've been through uh, first marriage and divorced. I don't think anyone left yet. You might leave after this and not come back. Honestly, there are people in this area that do not attend City Church because uh, they have a pastor who has been divorced. I think I'm probably in the same category as a lot of you. Um, so let's do this. I'll, I'll make this all-encompassing so we're not singling people out. Um, if you are, have either been through a divorce or the person to whom you are married has been through a divorce or you have a sibling who has been through a divorce or your parents um, were divorced or you have a child who has been divorced, uh, put your hand up. Okay? That's almost everyone in the room without exception. And so you can see why this is such a complicated and relevant uh, subject matter because ma marriage and divorce were matters of great controversy in Jesus' day and they are matters of great controversy in ours. This is a headline conversation uh, with strong opinions, if you have not noticed. Uh, not just in the marriage and divorce topic, but in our culture, uh, other things related to marriage, like who has the right to marry who type conversations. These are headline discussions that are constantly before us. This conversation, this discussion takes place in Mark in the context, if you've been with us, of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus. Specifically, we've been talking about what does it mean to reorient my life under the rule and reign of Jesus. Uh, that's what the kingdom of God is in Mark's gospel. Wherever Jesus rules and reigns is the kingdom of God. And Mark's call to us week after week is how do I realign my life? Uh, how do I reorient my life under the rule and reign of Jesus? And in this particular section, He's talking about discipleship, and here he talks about, and in this chapter we'll see the next couple of weeks, he talks about some of the most foundational aspects of life 
including marriage. What does it look like to live under the rule and reign of Jesus in marriage? And what Jesus has to say in this text is it was and is uh, as controversial and relevant today as it was when this exchange took place. So let's walk through the text together, and then I'm going to uh, talk about some, some things at the end in our time together. So 10.1, and he, this is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. We've seen this week after week, and we've made our way through Mark. Uh, now Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die and be raised back to life. And on the way, he passes by the Jordan River and into this mountainous region of Judea, which is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Um, as custom, we've seen week after week, crowds gather around him, and he teaches them. And then what we see in verse 2, again, common theme in Mark's gospel. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So as Jesus teaches during the Q&A time, the Pharisees have some questions for Jesus regarding whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Matthew adds to this, uh, divorce, divorce his wife for any reason. Um, it is obvious at this point in our journey in Mark that the motives of the religious leaders, the motives of the Pharisees are not pure. They are testing Jesus. They are tempting Jesus. Here, they're trying to pigeonhole Jesus. There are two primary schools of thought in Judaism on divorce. Now, these schools of thought often follow the head rabbi, okay? And so think in terms of two schools of thought, and whichever school of thought you were in was based on the rabbi that you were following. Uh, there was the Shammai um, school of thought, which was kind of the more conservative uh, beliefs within Judaism. They believed that divorce was only acceptable because of some type of sexual misconduct. There was a second train of thought that followed the Rabbi Hillel. They were what we would kind of know as the more uh, liberal proponents of Judaism. They believed that divorce could happen for any number of reasons. Uh, even just if I got tired of the person I was with, I could write them a certificate of divorce. And so you have these kind of two trains of thought. They're trying to pigeonhole Jesus into one of these, trying to align people against him. Also, interesting note here, this is the same region where John the Baptist was murdered for speaking out against the sinful marriage between the Roman Tetrarch Herod Antipas and his sister-in-law Herodias. That's back in chapter 6. You can go reread it. You can listen to the message where I talked about the uh, martyrdom of John the baptizer. Uh, but the reason that John was arrested and then eventually died is because he was speaking out publicly in this region against the head, the Roman head that was over this area, the Tetrarch, who took his sister-in-law, right, got rid of his, his brother, took his sister-in-law and married her. And John had things to say about that, and it eventually cost him his head. So maybe they're thinking that if Jesus speaks out here publicly along these same lines, that maybe they can take care of Jesus through another means. And so that's what's kind of going on in our context. Here's the question they test him with, verse 3. Um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answers them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they reply, Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to send her away. This is a common interpretation in their day of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It kind of reflects the shared view um, of, of their day and our day. And that is this idea, that marriage is a disposable contract. 
their question has to do more with what conditions allow divorce. Under what grounds is divorce acceptable? That's their, the heart of their question here. And they used Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, to answer this question. Now, that text was commonly used in the Old Testament law. It was used to discourage hasty divorce by requiring a man to stipulate in writing a reason for the divorce. So this mandate in Deuteronomy 24 was intended primarily to protect the wives because they were, they were the most vulnerable in that kind of patriarchal dominated society where a man could just dismiss a, a wife, uh, a mom, uh, for, for almost no reason. And then she would be left to kind of fend for herself. And so laws were put in place to protect that, to uh, protect the, the vulnerable, the uh, the, the one who has kind of been cast aside in those moments. And so those were the reason for these types of laws. And so Jesus explains how the Pharisees are missing the true purpose. They're missing the intent of Deuteronomy 24 by ignoring God's original design for marriage that he put forth in creation. Listen, what culture, even religious culture, permits and accepts as normal, Jesus challenges. Important for his culture and ours. So look how Jesus responds in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This is again referring to Deuteronomy 24. So the reason that this concession is in Deuteronomy 24, the reason this was allowed is because, Jesus says, of the hardness of your hearts. What that means is Deuteronomy 24 was the exception and not the rule. The bigger question for Jesus is, what was God's original intention for marriage? And that's where he takes us. He takes us back to the garden, the first marriage, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not Man, separate. You've heard that phrase used at weddings for, uh, it's been used for centuries of time now. So what Jesus does in this context, in this conversation, is he goes back to the first marriage in the Garden of Eden, the very first scene of the Bible, to God's original design. This is Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. He takes us back to that opening scene. And what we discover is God's original intent for marriage, and it's rather straightforward, and it has far-reaching implications that even impact us in 2022. So notice carefully here how Jesus defines and explains marriage. Let me just break down the text for us. What does it say in the text? One, marriage is between, Jesus says, a male and a female. This is Genesis, right? One. Marriage is between a male and a female. 
who were created by God for each other. Male and female created by God for each other. This is God's design. Period. Now, this is important. Jesus expressly, right here, openly and expressly mentions two sexes, two genders, to reinforce the maleness and the femaleness as essential requirements in God's design for marriage. Jesus expressly says that. So you'll hear arguments sometimes that Jesus never mentions whatever the topic is. In this case, Jesus never mentioned um, same-sex marriage. Jesus never came out and prohibited it. Uh, Well, the reason Jesus didn't prohibit a lot of things is because he enforced what was already in place, right? Jesus is really clear here that marriage was designed for a male and a female. That was God's intention from the beginning. So what Jesus does in this text is Jesus upholds the original design of God without compromise, that God created male and female for each other. So marriage is between a male and a female. What else do we see about marriage in this text? Uh, From Genesis through Jesus. Jesus also says that marriage is this idea of leaving and cleaving. Leaving and cleaving. So let's break down what that means. So this word leave, and the Hebrews word is ab, it means to to loosen. It means to abandon. Um, It means to shift, listen, shift loyalty. To shift loyalty. If we put it in terms we can understand, it means to cut the cord. Cut the umbilical cord almost, right? To cut the cord. So there's a couple of cords here that have to be cut when you leave in order to cleave. There's the cord of dependency, right? I am no longer relying on my parents for life provision, basically. I'm cutting the cord of dependency to become an independent couple. Some of you older parents are out there like, amen, say it louder. Cut the cord of dependency. Still dependent on me, and they're 38 years old. Right, I get it. I get it. Um, I told my kids the other day, the only, uh, my kids are away from the house. The only time I can get them to call me now is when I change the Netflix password. <laughs> Try it. Try it. You'll at least get a text, I promise you. Who changed the Netflix password? What is it? That reminds me of a story about Zach, but I'm not going to tell. I don't have time. Cord of dependency, not relying on your parents. The other idea here is to cut the cord of allegiance, and this is important. It is a priority shift that I am going from primarily being a son or a daughter to become a husband or a wife. It is a shift of priorities. When we do marriage things here, marriage conferences, marriage studies, Uh, A couple of things that we talk about are the vows of marriage, and one of the vows that we talk about in those studies is the vow of priority. And the vow of priority says that my spouse is my highest human priority. My highest human priority. That's what this is. My highest human priority is my spouse. Outside of your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God, Your highest human priority in life is your relationship with your spouse. Not your kids. Kids are awesome. Four of them. Love them all. Great relationship with all of them. But my highest human priority is not my relationship with my four kids. It's my relationship with Ashley. 
the vow of priority, that my spouse is my highest human priority in life. I will leave. It is a, it is a cord of allegiance, a shift of allegiance. My spouse, my highest human priority. That's the idea of leave. The idea of cleave, and I said cleave, not cleaver. Some of you are like, yeah, get the cleaver out. I'm ready for that. The idea of cleave is the word debak. It means to stick like glue. And there's this idea in the word built into this Hebrew word that means to pursue something. So leaving and clinging is the idea. And this idea of clinging, this idea of cleave involves protection, involves pursuing, and it involves honoring. Listen, honoring and valuing the person to whom I'm married. There is absolutely zero room for any type of abuse in a covenant marriage relationship. You understand? That to, to cleave, and I'm not just talking about physical. I'm talking about any type of mental, spiritual, emotional, physical. There's no room for it within the covenant of marriage because clinging is the idea of protecting, honoring, valuing. The vow of priority says my Spouse is my highest human priority. The vow of pursuit says I will pursue you always. That I will live my life in pursuit of Ashley. I will live my life in pursuit of her needs, her wants, her desires. Of seeking to, uh, to help her be everything God's created her to be as she seeks to do that for me. Do I get that right? Absolutely not, right? But it's the idea of I will cling to you. I will cling to you. I will leave and I will cleave to you. It is the heart of marriage from the opening pages of the Bible. So marriage is about a male and female. It is about uh, this idea of leaving and cleaving. And then Jesus, again, going back into the garden, says that marriage is a one flesh union. A one flesh union. This language is so important. One flesh union. The word one there is the word akkad. It means to be united. It means to become one. It means to be joined completely. This is new creation language. This is covenant language. Paul uses verbiage here when he talks about this. The verbiage that Paul uses is the mingling of souls. Mingling of souls when he references this verse. This idea of becoming one flesh involves sexual intimacy, which is why, again, we preach and teach the biblical model that sex is to be reserved within the confines of a one-man, one-woman marital covenant relationship. That's God's design. It's not popular, but it's God's design. So one flesh involves that. But don't miss this. It's not just about sex. One flesh union is more than just about sex. It is about the mingling of two lives. You know what that means? It's no longer just about me. It's not just about me. Because there's a mingling of souls that happens. We still have differences. If you know Ash and I, we've got differences. We're very different people in a lot of ways. So it's not about I'm giving up my differences or trying to make me someone I'm not, right? It's not about, it's about the mingling of souls that God takes these two uniquely designed and created people 
and brings them together into a one flesh union that can only happen within this gospel framework of God creating and designing marriage to be this way. And then here's the last one I'll mention from this text. Marriage is designed by God for life, for life, for a lifetime. What God joins together, humans are incapable of dividing. The verbiage here is strong words. The marriage covenant in God's design is unbreakable. It's unbreakable. It is not merely, it should not be broken. The language Jesus uses here from Genesis is that it cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. So what that means is divorce is a violation of God's original intention. Which is why this all makes sense in this context of Jesus saying, Deuteronomy 24 was given as an exception. It's not the norm. It's not God's design. It's given because of this violation of God's intention. So God's marriage blueprint is put forth clearly in the opening scene of human history. Male and female, leave and cleave, one flesh union for life. This is God's created, all the way into creation, God's created design. Anything less than this model is outside of God's intention, period. It's pretty clear from the text. And we know this is complicated, isn't it? And we're going we're to talk about some of those complexities. Let me finish the text first here. Jesus reemphasizes this model with the disciples starting in verse 10 when they again ask him privately about his teaching. In the house, the disciples ask him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I mean, these are the words that, like Jim said, that just kind of leaves you scratching your heads. Like, how do you break all this down? What does this all mean? At a, at a minimum, Jesus is clear here that violating God's design for marriage is a sin against God, listen, and your spouse, and your spouse, okay, we'll talk more about that in a moment, so let me talk candidly with you for a few minutes because there are so many, (laughs) there are so many relevant implications for what Jesus teaches here in terms of marriage and divorce and just this kind of plethora of sexual ethics questions in our modern culture. Um, I think at a minimum, as people who claim to believe and teach the Bible and follow Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, I think that we can admit that the text is, is really clear on God's creative design when it comes to marriage. And by the way, we believe and teach here at City Church that God is a sovereign God. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. He's above human history. Like, there's nothing that catches God off guard. And so there is no place in this understanding. There's no modern scenario that was outside of his scope of awareness. It wasn't that God was sitting in heaven and thought, well, I never thought of that. I never thought that that relationship would happen, or I didn't even think to put that in the Bible, right? Uh, That God is all-sovereign and over all of history, and so... Uh, What we have in the Scripture is what He designed for us to have. And I also want to be very clear here that from a Christian worldview, from a Christian perspective, the church has held a consistent position on most of the issues that are headline issues today. The church has held a consistent position grounded in Scripture 
for over 2,000 years. Over 2,000 years. The churches kind of have the same position on all of these matters that get headlined today. So we have to keep those things in mind, that this is grounded in Scripture and it's grounded in history. We have to start from the right starting point when we have these conversations. And we are well aware that many of these biblical and historical beliefs are in question. They're in question outside the church and even under assault outside the church in a lot of venues. They are under question um, outside the church and now even inside the church. These conversations are happening. Discussions regarding sexuality, um, gender dysphoria, marriage rights, same-sex relationships, um, hooking up, the hooking up culture that we live in, even the necessity of marriage itself. Is it antiquated? Is it out of date? Like, why should a person even get married, right? And on and on and on and on. Uh, these issues are constantly before us. By the way, they are not new conversations. Open up your Bible, read Romans, read 1 Corinthians. Paul's having these same conversations. What does it look like to have a Christ-centered sexual relationship in the context of his cultures where, I mean, you think our culture is crazy on some of these issues? Like, go study the, 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 the original Roman Empire and what Paul was dealing with. It's insane. Now, again, let me be clear here. These are conversations that the church must engage. The church must engage these conversations. Parents, we must engage them. We have to be engaged in these conversations in a biblical and loving way. These issues are not going away. They're not going to disappear. And we must be equipped to discuss these matters, don't miss the paradigm, biblically and lovingly. Let's be honest. We have not and do not always get this right, do we? We're, we're quick, we're quick to be really loud and vocal about what we believe the Bible teaches on these things and kind of dismiss anything that's different than that. We're very quick to state our opinions. We're not always as quick to do it in a Christ-focused, loving way for our neighbor. Biblical and loving. I want to tell you, if you miss the boat on either one of those, and we're going to get it wrong, but if we neglect either one of those, we will fall into a place that we do not want to be with our circle of influence and even now with our own children, right? Parents, if, if these are conversations that you're having as your kids growing up in this culture are wrestling with certain things, like if we're not having these conversations in a biblical and loving way, guess what will happen? We'll turn them away from the very gospel that we proclaim. So how do we have these conversations in biblical and loving ways? We want to be very clear where the Scriptures are clear. And we want to do it in a way that points people to Jesus and not away from Jesus. And remember in the process, I have to remind myself of this all the time. Remember in the process of these conversations, these are complex issues. Like your perspective is not the only perspective. These are complex issues. We're not going to have all the answers. It is why we must continue to grow 
and learn and listen and do what we can to point people to Jesus and cling to Scripture. Like if you're not listening, if you're not listening to the conversations that are happening, if you're just dismissing it, if you're just dismissing it because it's not your perspective or not what you believe, then you're going you're gonna to miss the gap on bridging people to Jesus. Be a listener. Be a learner. Seek to understand. It's what it's going to take to engage as a church, as parents, as people in our culture. How do I listen and learn and grow, cling to Scripture and point people to Jesus? And I want you to hear me say this as the lead pastor, primary teacher here at City Church. We want City Church to be a place where it's safe to have these conversations. There's not a lot of churches where it's safe. I shouldn't say it that way. I should say there are a lot of churches out there where it's not as safe to have these type of conversations. And I want you to hear me. If you're a person wrestling, struggling with these things, with these questions, with these I don't understand this, maybe it's not even something that you're feeling or dealing with. You're just struggling with the question, right? You have friends that have this belief or believe this or want to do this, and you have acquaintances that, man, they seem to be a loving couple, and uh, why is this not allowed, right? Those type of questions. We want City Church to be a safe place to have those type of conversations. And I can tell you as the pastor of this church, if you want to engage me in that conversation, I will do it in a biblical and loving way. I will not condemn you. I will not judge you. I will not point my finger. I will listen, seek to learn, and seek to point you to Jesus and point you to what does the Bible teach on this. Let's figure it out together. Let's go to the text. Let's understand it together. What about this? Well, I don't know about that, but let's, let's go to Scripture and see what it has to say. We want this to be a space where it's safe to have the conversation, all right? So feel that for me today. I know it's complicated, it's complex, but let's make this a safe space to have those type of discussions. Now, that was kind of tough to go through. Let's get more specific. Let's talk specifically about divorce, which, by the way, it's a lot closer to home than a lot of the things we were just talking about. We love to highlight other people's sins, right? In this text, Jesus is talking about something pretty specific that hits a lot closer to home for all of us. And what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce is equally as important as everything I just said about the sins you may not struggle with, but it's easy to condemn, right? You see, the teaching of Scripture is, frankly, very clear on this one as well. One man, one woman, leave and cleave, one flesh union for a lifetime. Anything less than that is a deviation from God's design and falls short of His intention. Hold on, don't tune me out now, okay? Because I have a few comments that are in order when we have a conversation like this. So listen, as sinners, we often fall short of God's ideal. We fall short of God's design. How do I know that? Let's just go back to my opening paragraph. And almost every hand in our room was up. 
uh, divorce has impacted your life directly in some way. We are sinners who fall short. And Jesus is clear in this text. It is because of the hardness of our hearts that sin happens, because that divorce happens, because it is not God's intention. Now, in His grace, God put laws in place to protect the vulnerable. Deuteronomy 24. God put laws in place to protect the vulnerable when these situations occur. But those provisions, those exceptions, are not the intention of God's design. So what are these exceptions? I mean, you can read a lot of opinions on this. This is the same question the Pharisees were asking, by the way. What are the exceptions? This question asked by the Pharisees, we have to approach it with the same attitude of intention as Jesus did. First and foremost, our, our goal is to talk about the intention and not just the escape clauses. How do I get out of this? What is God's created intent for marriage? Now, because of the hardness of our sinful hearts, the Scriptures do appear to provide some exceptions. I would suggest that those exceptions align with what we just talked about and what it means to be in a covenant marriage. Jesus and Paul addressed these exceptions clearly. So let's think about just two components of the covenant marriage, leave and cleave. We talked about what that means. So what is the exception within a leave and cleave framework? Paul talks about this in the Corinthians. He talks about the idea of abandonment. The opposite of leaving and cleaving is to abandon someone. And so I, I would argue that the New Testament teaches that one of the exceptions within the covenant marriage that would potentially give the allowance for a divorce would be this idea of abandonment. And we'd have to break down exactly what that looks like. Paul talks primarily in terms of a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, and the unbelieving spouse chooses to walk. That's the primary heart of the idea of abandonment. I would also, and there are some that would agree or disagree with me on this, I would also include in that idea of leaving and cleaving the violation of abuse because the idea of clinging, cleaving, even within the Hebrew word itself, is the idea of protection and honor and value and pursuit. And I believe a pattern of abuse, a pattern of abuse violates that. Now, that gets complicated, right? And again, our heart is not, I'm looking for an exception to get out of this thing. Our heart is, what is God's intention? But God, in His grace, has allowed space because of the stubbornness of the human heart. Leave and cleave, exception, abandonment, abuse. The other component of a covenant marriage that is very clear, one flesh union. What is the exception for a one flesh union? Well, Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's the idea of a pattern of sexual sin. It's translated often in the English Bible, adultery. Um, adultery is not the only word that can be translated out of the original word, but it's one of the primary words. And so the idea is this kind of pattern of sexual sin violates the covenant of one flesh union. Okay, And so you kind of see these exceptions in the New Testament. Again, I want to emphasize God's intent for covenant marriage is for a lifetime. But due to the hardness of our hearts, those exceptions are provided in grace. 
If you are in a situation where these covenant commitments have been or are being violated, listen, be intentional and be very careful how you navigate the divorce conversation. And here's why I would say that. Our God is in the restoring, reconciling, transforming business. Our God takes the broken and heals. Our God takes wounds and restores. Our God takes what seems to be impossible situations and redeems them for His glory. He is in the transformation business. And so we must give God the space to do His work in both spouses. Now, I want to follow that up quickly with this. Do not misunderstand or mishear me. I am not saying to ever, listen, to ever keep yourself in a dangerous situation. You hear me? I am saying clearly to you, if you're in a dangerous situation, physical abuse, right? My life is being threatened even at some level. Get out of that situation. I don't know what that looks like. It's complex, right? I'm not saying run and sign the divorce papers and all that. I'm just saying do not keep yourself in any type of dangerous situation. There are other options outside of just signing off, right? And so, but do not keep yourself in a dangerous situation. We give God the space to work, but that doesn't mean God's asking us to just allow ourselves to continue to be abused. You hear me? Okay? And so here's the other thing I would say quickly to follow up with that. You need Jesus-loving, Jesus-following professionals to help walk you through these type decisions. You need people around you. You need people that can speak into that. You need people that will love you through the processes of figuring all those things out. So that means a couple of things. One, you don't have to do it on your own. Man, that's awesome. That's why we're a family. The second thing I would say is it's okay. It's okay to be, it's not okay what's happening, but it's okay to be in a broken situation where you need help and you need people around you because if you're like me, I can't see clearly when that kind of stuff's happening. I need other people to speak into my life who can see more clearly than I can because they're removed from the intimacy of it. So as you're navigating those waters, instead of making hasty decisions, right, keep yourself out of danger, but also allow Jesus-loving God-following people to be able to speak into that and to seek to help you make wise decisions in those things. So there are lots of life situations in this room. I can't even pretend to cover them all. Let me mention a couple. If you are currently married to your one and only spouse, prioritize your marriage. Your spouse must be your highest human priority. Here's why. The goal of the enemy is to destroy it, to kill it. Make no mistakes about it. He's coming for you. 
And if you do not prioritize your marriage, your spouse is your highest human priority, you're leaving the door open. So, situation, married to your one and only spouse, protect your marriage. Prioritize your marriage. Here's the second one, a little more complicated. Divorced and not remarried and neither is my ex. It seems like such a harsh phrase, the ex. My former spouse, my ex-spouse. Divorced, not remarried, ex-spouse is not remarried. Now, what I'm about to say, listen carefully. Because of the exceptions that God has provided, right, with abuse, abandonment, adultery, the things we talk about. Disrupting a marriage for reasons other than those, you might still be married in God's eyes. Let that settle. If we're reading this text for what it says, divorced but not in a new covenant of marriage, either one of you, one flesh, unbreakable. Is this a complex situation? Absolutely. Do I have all the answers? No. If you come to me, I'm going to point you to another professional that can help you. <laughs> no. I mean, these are tough times. I'll have the conversation with you. Navigate it carefully. It's why that we want to seek biblical guidance, and it's why I want to emphasize to you over and over and over again, City Church is a safe space to work through the complexity will help you in those conversations, right? So that's a second scenario. By the way, again, we want to emphasize here, the wrong question is what is permitted. The right question is what is God's intention? Third scenario, divorced and remarried, okay? So I believe that the Scriptures seem to teach that when you enter into a marriage, you are entering to a covenant, okay? So if that first covenant was broken, and you entered into a second covenant of marriage, I believe that that is the covenant to which you are to remain faithful and true. So what that means is I'm not to go run out and try to divorce my current and marry my ex. So calm down. That's not what I'm saying. Stay committed to the covenant that you are in, okay? Ash and I, early in our process, we've been married for 12 years. Coming on 12. She didn't let me finish. She just blurted out. 11 going on 12 years. In our first year or two, I would say, um, Ash and I were introduced into a concept that revolutionized our marriage. If you think the statistics on marriage surviving in the first marriage are low, second marriage, divorce rates are triple what first marriage are. Very few second marriages survive. And we wanted to survive. We did not just want to survive, but we wanted to thrive. And so we were introduced to a concept that was actually taught by um, a big pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley, but um, Andy teaches a lot on marriage. And we were listening to uh, one of Andy's series on marriage, and he actually mentioned this just kind of at the end of his sermon. He was talking about the covenant of marriage, and then at the end of his sermon, he kind of explained our situation. And he said, there's some of you that are in a second marriage, a second covenant, and I want to say just a word to you. 
And he said in that moment, like, I want you to cling to this idea of second marriage grace. Second marriage grace. Man, we've just taken that to heart uh, to say that's our situation. And so we cling um, to second marriage grace. Now, what that meant for us that I mentioned earlier in the text that was so important in our process of realigning and reorienting our hearts and lives under the rule and reign of Jesus is he said something in that message that I had never thought about that was very convicting to us that when we went through the process of it really brought a ton of healing into our relationship. And um, the statement was basically some of you need to repent uh, not only to your ex-spouse that maybe you have sinned against. We had both um, tried to go through that process of doing that. But he said, some of you also need to repent to your current spouse that you have sinned against them by violating their original covenant of marriage. And so I'll never forget when Ash and I had that moment to look at each other and repent that we had not honored each other and we had not honored our original covenants, that we had not protected those, but had broken those. And through that process of repentance and reorienting our hearts and lives toward Jesus with each other, it brought such a healing to our own hearts and lives and really allowed us to take a lot of, of steps in our journey toward healing. And so if you're in a current covenant of marriage that is not your first um, and it, it may be down the road for you. It may be on two to whatever, three, four, whatever it is. Um, I want to encourage you to cling to second marriage grace because His grace is enough. It's enough for you. It's enough for you. And the voices in your head will try to disrupt it. The guilt and the shame will try to tear down your current covenant. And so you've got to cling Cling to His grace. And you got to have those honest, open conversations with each other and with Him. All right? Last situation. Um, and again, I, I know I'm not getting all of them. Um, some of you are not married, and you've not been married. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to follow God's creative design. It is always best. What I'm telling you is it's always best. The leave, the cleave, the one flesh, right? Keeping the one flesh intimacy within the boundaries of a covenant marriage relationship, it's best, regardless of what culture says. It's best. Regardless of how antiquated it seems, it's best. And we can line up people in this room that can show you and tell you why it's best. For the damage is done in their own hearts and relationships and the complexity they've worked through. So I think I've walked through enough scenarios where I've hit almost everybody. If I missed you, come talk to me. All right, I'm going to circle back to this because this is how I want to end this. I want to circle back to the broader context of Mark here. Remember, Jesus is speaking in the larger framework of what it means to be a disciple, to live under his rule and reign this morning, in my marriage. And kingdom living, as we've said week after week, is what? It's upside down living. Kingdom living is often the opposite of what we hear. It's upside down living. We've learned the last few weeks that greatness comes through serving. 
So if you want a great marriage, it's going to come through serving and sacrifice. Disciples are called to reflect God's faithfulness by pursuing faithfulness and fidelity with our spouse. And I'm not just talking about sex. We are called to pursue faithfulness and fidelity with our spouse. What that means is faithfulness over selfishness, which God has given us a platform to talk to a lot of married couples based on our story of not getting it right, right? And God redeeming that for his glory. God's allowed us to speak into a lot of your lives, a lot of other lives on this issue. And I can tell you most of the things that we deal with in these terms, marriage problems come down to choosing selfishness over faithfulness. Including us, right? So think about the context of Mark. Marriage is grounded in this death-life paradigm of the gospel that we see over and over. So what Mark has been teaching us is that the resurrection happens after the crucifixion. That Jesus suffers and dies and then he is raised from the dead in resurrection power. What I'm not saying is you need to have a miserable marriage before you have a happy one. Here's what I'm saying. Die to yourself when it comes to marriage. What that looks like in marriage is that I want to adopt a cross-shaped posture and attitude toward my spouse by serving them, sacrificing, and prioritizing each other. We experience the life-giving power of God in our marriage. We experience greatness through serving and sacrifice, not selfishness. All right. I do this every few weeks. Men, speaking to us clearly here because we tend to get this wrong. When we are pursuing a cross-shaped posture, a cross-shaped attitude, a cross-shaped pattern of life, we read it in the call to worship. Sacrificial service toward our wives. To love as Christ loved the church. So I want to challenge our men to pursue a cross-shaped pattern of sacrificial service toward your wife. Listen, seek her fulfillment. Seek her growth. Seek her, right, excellence. Seek her success. Applaud when things happen that are positive in her life, like be her biggest fan, be her biggest cheerleader, right? Support, like seek self-sacrificial service, seeks her fulfillment, seeks her growth. Per, listen, pursue her with the grace that you've been given, with the amount of grace that I've needed, right? I should be able to reflect and to pursue Ashley with grace because I've been given more grace than I ever deserved. So how much grace should I be exhibiting and living toward her in our relationship? Pursue her with godly grace. Love as Christ loves. And when this happens, our marriage becomes a place of life 
of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of wholeness, of joy. This is the cross-shaped posture, the cross-shaped attitude that Mark's talking about. When you adopt a cross-shaped attitude in life, it leads to life and fulfillment and joy and happiness. We sacrifice and we serve because that's the path to greatness. And it applies in our marriage. All right, I'm wrapping it up. I know. Food's getting cold. I get it. So I'm just going to say it as clearly as I know. This is men and women. A cross-shaped posture in marriage is not about what I want, what I need, what I deserve. The life of the disciple is marked by the cross. What that means is my expectations, my desires, my fantasies, my visions of a fairy tale romance, my plans of what a marriage should look like, all of these are nailed to a cross, which enables us to build marriages that are grounded in resurrection life. A cross-shaped posture. So, you have a pastor and a pastor's wife who got this wrong. We got it wrong. And we, 11 plus years later, still feel the weight and the consequences of getting it wrong. Lives were hurt and damaged because we got it wrong. Lives were dictated because we got it wrong. Thankfully, you have a pastor that got it right, but you have a Jesus, right? You have a Jesus who corrects the wrongs. You have a Jesus who redeems and reconciles and redirects and reorients and rebuilds and restores and heals and makes things right. So that's why I always say, don't you get your eyes on me. Don't you get your eyes on me. Because I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. But if by looking at me, if I can point you to him, I can get your eyes on him, right? I can tell you he'll get it right. He'll get it right. So listen, some of you feel broken today. You feel broken because of a past relationship or a status that you're in now or a relationship that, that didn't end like you thought it was going to or you committed a sin or this happened or that, and you feel it. You feel the weight, the shame, the guilt, the brokenness. Uh, some of you are still in a marriage after that. Some of you are not in a marriage because of that. Some of you are single. Some of you are divorced. Some of you have been multiple married, multiple divorced, kids, step. It gets complicated. I get it, but no. That there is a Savior who is faithful, who will meet you where you are, who will redeem you for his glory and his purposes, and he's not done with you yet. Cling to him. He is more than enough for you. Let's bow our heads for prayer.